Thank you, uh, Peter, for leading us in worship, and we'll continue to worship the Lord as we open the Scriptures and, um, and allow the Lord to speak to us from them. Continue in Romans, and we're up to chapter 10. We spent quite a few sessions in Romans chapter 9, and no doubt we will in chapter 10 and 11 as well. And um, as I indicated earlier on, I've decided I'm going to take my time through this. And um, I'm just enjoying it myself personally so much that, uh, yeah, well, that's what I, I, I want to do. And um, uh, rather than give you a whole lot, I, I believe that little bits are more helpful to us. So let's uh, open the scriptures to Romans chapter 9. And we're just going to read four verses today and, and, and just look briefly at them. So Romans chapter 10 verse 1 reads, Brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. We'll just stop right there. The word them is in relation to who we were speaking about in chapter 9, which is uh, the Jews. Israel is a nation. And he goes on in verse 2, says, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end or points to the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Okay, we'll stop there and, um, and we'll look at these few verses. A little bit of sex, a little piece of scripture, but uh, I, want, I want to pause on this for a little while today, and there's a few points that I want to bring out. But as I was thinking about this, I was thinking about what was happening here in, in Judaism, and it reminded me of an occasion when I first used a satellite navigation system in my car. And um, it happened to be that I, uh, we needed to get from Sydney Airport to West Sydney, out to um, Seven Hills area. And so I hired one of these devices with all its credentials of pinpoint accuracy, etc., and and plugged the thing in and, and supposedly keyed in the right uh, coordinates. And, um, and and this machine took off; it never stopped talking to me. And um, and but the trouble is, it took me on a completely different journey than my gut instinct was telling me. As a matter of fact, this so-called accurate machine becomes so frustrating to me in my reckoning, in my reckoning, that I turned the stupid thing off and, and, and resorted to guesswork and phone calls and signposts to find my way from Sydney Airport to West Sydney. But upon reflection, some period or hours later, and in discussion with our Sydney hosts, actually which happened to be Stephen Karen, the sat-nav device had been right on cue and was taking me exactly where I needed to go in order to miss all the heavy traffic and all the expensive toll roads, it was right on cue. But my problem was um, that I ignored the truth that this machine was delivering to me. My own instincts, which were completely wrong by the way, was so overpowering and so real that I was not willing to listen, let alone trust in this outside source from getting me from A to B. Well, this was a similar problem that Paul was confronting 
in this section of the scripture in his letter to the Roman church. Now, it wasn't about sat-navs, no. It wasn't about satellite navigation, but very much about the true way of God's righteousness versus Jewish self-righteousness. You see, their own way of God's righteousness or earning God's righteousness or earning God's salvation was based on tradition. And it was zealously guarded. It was... God-focused, no doubt about that, and it was a religious journey that they were on. But all their religious tradition and zealousness was no substitute for the truth of God. You see, in their ignorance of the way of righteousness, though it was so near them, as we see in verse 8 of this chapter, it was so very near them, they were rejecting God himself. And this is what we're going to be looking at briefly this morning, how ignorance of God's truth or being in ignorance of God's truth really means a rejection of God himself. And we can have that PowerPoint up there, please, the first one. That's the title, by the way. But before we begin, we need to have firmly placed in our minds that God's truth is the standard and measure. No, not that one, the the title. Okay, yeah. This is why I love one of those clickers, so I don't have to embarrass those guys back there. <laughs> Linda, we've got to get one of those things, okay? Brenda, I should say. Okay, so we're going to have a look at this this morning. Um, and God's truth is the measure that we measure everything else on. You want to know about truth, we need to start with God. And, um, and so if you want to know truth about what is right, what is wrong, what is evil, what is good what is righteousness, what is unrighteousness. You need to start with God's standard on these things and certainly not your own gut instinct or what culture tells us. And to start with, you know, when I'm thinking about this, about God's truth, John, in the Gospel, he said that uh, this about Jesus. He said that Jesus was what? That he was full of grace and truth. Have that in John 1, 14. And then later on, Jesus himself he declared in the temple where he had been preaching and a, whole, a number of Jews believed in him and he says to them, if you abide in my word and you are, you are truly my disciples, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. We have that in um, John 14 and verse 6. So truth about Christ is essential to hear and know for one's salvation, but it's also essential for believers' ongoing sanctification. Okay? for their ongoing sanctification. Because as you know, in John 17, Jesus prayed to his Father on behalf of all believers, not only then in his time, but all believers right up including ourselves today. He prayed that the Father might sanctify them in truth. And then he says, thy word is truth. But we also need to note some warnings about truth. The Apostle Paul gives a number of these. Warnings about rejecting truth. He said to one church, the Thessalonian believers, he said, those who perish do so because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. That's 2 Thessalonians 2.10. And those who are saved and are sanctified, sanctified by what? This is what he says in 2.13. By the spirit and faith in the truth. So you can see, we need to understand what truth is, what God's truth is. You see, God places a a high premium on his truth in the gospel. 
This truth this is life-changing, it's sin-cleansing, it's salvation-giving truth, and this alone opens the doors of heaven and is the only road to righteousness. Now, that may sound dogmatic and certainly not politically correct in a, in a religious arena today, but so be it. This truth is the gospel of God wrought in Jesus Christ by his grace alone through faith alone, which the which the Apostle Paul mentions in chapter 1, verse 1 of Romans, because he was bringing to them the gospel of God. And, and this is what the Jewish leaders and Israel in general in Paul's day and Israel today, generally speaking, um, were stumbling over because, because of their blatant, prideful, traditional religious belief system. It blinded their eyes to divine truth. So how does Paul approach this religious conundrum that we have here that was stumbling his brethren, his own people, his ethnic race, if you want to call it. How does he handle it? Well, firstly, like at the beginning of chapter 9, he shows them, we'll have the first heading up there now, Jordan, a heart of compassion for the salvation of the lost. We see this in verse 1 of our text today. And so Paul begins this section by exposing his heart of love for his fellow Jewish brethren. You know, he, he had just related truth about Judaism and its followers right through chapter 9 and now here in chapter 10, he just, re, just related to them some hard truths that would be difficult for these religious people to swallow. So Paul comes alongside. So what does he do? He comes alongside his ethnic brothers understanding fully the persuasiveness of Judaism and the historical roots it had, the nurture that they had, but he understood that it blinded them. You see, what Paul had given them in chapter 9 and now about to give them in chapter 10, it was, it was really offensive teaching to the Jews. It was not politically correct, we may say. And we might pause here for a moment to understand that the Apostle Paul was not a pretty boy preacher. Not a pretty boy preacher where he gave the people only what they liked so that they might like him in return. That's what we call a pretty boy preacher. No way. He gave them a divine truth and what did it do? It hacked at the very soul of their distorted works-based belief system and exposed their sinful, unbelieving and prideful hearts and how they were ignorantly rejecting God. He deals it to them. But Paul loves these people. He loves these people. He's compassionate. You see that in our first verse? He did not come across as some cold, hard-nosed theologian that sat heavily and only on the side of God's sovereignty in election without manifesting any emotion of heartfelt love for these people. No, he did not do that. He says, what does he say? Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God, for them is their salvation. He understood the tension that existed in getting to grips with God's sovereign election and man's responsibility to repent and believe. He understood that tension that we've already talked about here in recent weeks. But look how he handled this theological truth. He prays for Israel, for their salvation. He knows himself 
he teaches himself as he was inspired by the Spirit of God to write and preach. He knows that God will only save his elect. He knows, as we were talking about last week, that God will only save the remnant. He will only save his chosen. But that does not stop Paul going all out in prayer, petitioning God for the entire nation to be saved. He was a man of faith, folks. He was a man of faith. He was a man who accepted the absolute sovereignty of God in all things, yet that did not make him cold and callous toward all people. He did not fret and spend wasted years like so many do in battling to reconcile what Spurgeon called God's two friends, God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. He didn't waste time doing that. He just got on with the job. He prayed. But his prayer was not given either with in the mindset of, well, even though I know that this will never happen, but I will ask God anyway. No, it wasn't asked with that mindset. Paul prayed fully believing that God could save all Israel there and then, no matter how improbable that may humanly seem. He knew that he could save them if they only put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, their Messiah, their King. He believed that. And so he prayed. My dear people, I honestly believe we have lost our love and heart for the souls of sinful people and, and, and those around us. Why? Because our faith in God is so weak. Oh, that our prayers might be big prayers. Springing out of, a, of an enlarged faith in God. You know the disciples? Lord, increase our faith, they called out to him. Prayers that come from hearts fully believing that God can save all those who we pray for. Do you pray like that? Do I pray like that? Or are your prayers puny prayers that are spawned out of a miserly faith in a very small and a weak God? My dear people, let us pray that our hearts might be revived. And our faith in our mighty God might be strengthened in order to pray for the lost as Paul prayed for the lost here. This brings us to our second point. A heart zealous for God but an ignorance. We see this in verses 2 and 3. Paul's heart prayer was that his Jewish brethren might be saved and know the true blessing of God. But he didn't stop there. Okay? He didn't stop there. He went and testified about their real problem that was blocking God's salvation blessing. As I said before, he was no pretty boy preacher or writer on this occasion because he preached also what he wrote. You know, as I was thinking about this, people generally don't mind being prayed for. Right? Matter of fact, it's surprising, even unsaved people will even ask, knowing that you're a Christian and supposedly a man of prayer, People will even ask for you to pray for them over some maybe physical or some uh, emotional ailment they might have. And that's okay. And we do that. But to be told then of your sinful attitude and your behaviour before God, that's another story. 
That's often another story. But that doesn't stop the apostle. He gets to the heart of the Jewish spiritual blockage here, the problem. He testifies, what does he say? That you have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. He really hits the home here. Now this word zeal is interesting, and I'll spend a little bit of time on it because I just want to, and I feel the Lord has a timely message for us. This word has an idea of being, of water actually being brought to boil and overflowing. That's where it sort of comes from. In other words, Paul was saying of his Jewish brothers, his Jewish brethren, his, his people, yes, you are enthusiastic. Yes, you are on the boil. Yes, you are hot for God. But your zeal, your heat is not based on the true knowledge of God. The zeal was misplaced. It was way off course. They had a certain kind of knowledge. The word knowledge here is gnosis. That is an intellectual understanding of God and His demands, which, which they outwardly obeyed. They're real good at that. And they made sure that everyone could see. But they did not have spiritual discerning knowledge or epinosis is the Greek word. They didn't have the spiritual discerning knowledge that only comes from a saving relationship with God. They didn't have that. All they had was a superficial knowledge that produced what? It produced pride and arrogance, not the knowledge that produces humility and holiness. They didn't have that. They were ignorant of God's righteousness because their own traditions and religiosity and self-righteousness blocked their view. And they become arrogant. 1 Corinthians 8.1 tells us about how that kind of knowledge, all it does is breed arrogance. They were not willing to submit their human reasoning, their intellect, their gut instinct, if you like. They were not willing to submit their pride to the truth of God's righteousness in the person of His Son, Jesus Christ. They weren't, didn't want to go there. Oh, they were sincere, no doubt about that, absolutely. Enthusiastic? Man, you've got to give these guys 10 out of 10. But they were sincerely wrong. By the way, Paul knew all about this too, by the way. He was speaking first-hand here. He wasn't sort of someone who'd read a book about this sort of stuff. No, no, no. Paul knew about this kind of zeal first-hand. He wrote to the Galatian church on another occasion and gave testimony of his prior, life, prior conversion before he got saved in Galatians 1, 13, 14. This is what he said to them. For you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond the many of my own age, my own age among my people, and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. There, that's Paul's testimony before he got saved. In other words, Paul, like his Jewish brethren, they pursued God in the wrong way, even in all his enthusiasm and his zeal, but it was blind zeal. We often see this today, right? Nothing too much has changed. Religions, whether it's Catholicism, whether it's Orthodoxy, Eastern Orthodoxy, Western Orthodoxy, whatever. You see this so much in so many religions. 
We see zeal displayed by cults. We see it displayed by false religion. You know those door knockers that come around usually in twos and threes? We hate JWs. We see that and we think, oh, wow, these guys are keen. They're at least enthusiastic. Why, even the Muslims, they will kill and be killed in their zealousness for Allah. There is so much zealousness, but not according to the God's gospel. Not according to the good news of, of how righteousness is obtained through Jesus Christ. That's why I want to pull up a little bit. I want to ask yourself, you, you, you people and myself, what about our zeal? Where is our heat? Where is our zeal for truth? Surely we have greater reason to be zealous because we have the pure knowledge of God, right? We have the full canon of Scripture. All that God has willed for us to see and know about Him, He has given it, folks. It's complete. Far more than the Jews ever did in their day. So what about our zeal? Where is it? What's happened? Paul reminded Titus to rebuke and exhort and reprove the saints in Crete in that God has redeemed us. What for? This is what it's for. To purify himself of people for his own possession, zealous of good works. See, if I, I, it doesn't take a Philadelphian lawyer to work out that if a person can be zealous for false truth, surely it calls for a greater zealousness from believers for God's truth. Amen? Please bear with me as I draw your attention to this matter because it's been rightly said, it's been rightly said that the Christian churches today, and I'm going to lump our church in with this one, and myself included, I'm not excluding myself, we are looking less like enemies engaged in war and more like lazy boy chairs from which drowsy Christians are saying, don't wake me up. So we need to ask, what is zeal according to God's truth? We really need to know that. John Reynolds, a Puritan, he said, zeal is an earnest desire and concern for all things pertaining to the glory of God and the kingdom of the Lord Jesus among men, end quote. Or another Puritan, Samuel Ward, defined zeal as this. In plain English, zeal is nothing but heat. It is a spiritual heat wrought in the heart of man by the Holy Ghost, improving the good affections of love, joy, hope, etc., for the best service and furtherance of God's glory. End quote. You see, folks, true biblical zeal is not often, as we think it is, it's not, it's not a rush of enthusiasm that we might see directed toward one particular ministry or one particular area of our Christian life. It's not that. True biblical zeal is like a, it's like a fire in the belly that comprehensively brings to boil all the affections for God and His greater glory. That's what it is. In other words, our love for God, our love for Christ, our love for the Spirit of God, our love for one another, our love for this church, our love for the ministry, our love for the Scriptures, for missions, for prayer, for the lost, for heaven, it will burn hotter and hotter within us, folks. That's what zeal is. 
So where is that kind of zeal? Where is it? Where's the fire in our bellies and our souls brought about by God's truth and His Spirit energizing us to boil for Him? I ask myself, where is it? I don't see much of that kind of comprehensive holy zeal. But I do know that we're all zealous people to some degree or other. I know that for sure. I look at my own heart. And I get the opportunity to, to examine and, 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 and see and, and learn of other people. We're all zealous to some degree or other. The question is, is not, are we zealous? But really the question is, what are we zealous for? It is true that zeal runs in our veins. It's something, that's how we're wired. It runs in our veins for what we love and also for what we hate. We're wired that way. We're zealous for something. We passionately love some things like, like family, like sports, like careers, like material things that we willingly make considerable sacrifices for. But on the other side of the coin is that we equally hate things, maybe like oppression and bad political decisions and injustices, etc. And the list could go on. In other words, zeal burns for things as well as against things. But where is our zeal for God, God gone? Where is our heated hearts for God and our hot hatred for sin? It's all gone. Where is it gone? Can I suggest it's like lukewarmness that's kind of fused together. and We don't see it too much anymore. How we need holy zeal, folks, where all our affections all our affections toward God and His glory are increasingly being brought to boil, which in effect, by the way, which in effect, you know what that does? It becomes contagious. It becomes contagious and has a reaction among the saints. Where is that kind of zeal? As I said before, sadly, I look into my own heart and I see a great lack of that kind of godly zeal. Oh, that God would give me more. I see, I see this kind of zeal lacking in this church. I see it lacking in churches generally. On occasions we may see outbursts of zealousness, but, but far too many of us do not have our hearts ablaze for God's glory and, and have decided that, that this holy zeal is not necessary anymore. So in our lazy boy chairs we simply say, don't wake me up. Dear people, are you zealous for God's glory as you are for your reputation? Are you as zealous for God's glory as you are for your career, for your friends, for your family, for your bank account, for your physical fitness, for your retirement plan? Christopher Love, another Puritan in 1600, said this when he was preaching on one occasion from Amos chapter 7 and verse 2 where it says, that the people of his day, they, they, they pant after the dust of earth in Amos' day. And he was speaking on this text. In other words, he was reminding the people, even in Christopher Love's day, that so many were willing to expend all their energies in pursuit of the world that they'd almost run out of breath. And expressing his concern further, Christopher Love says, Oh, how many pant after the earth who have no breathing for heaven. 
We can be as hot as fire for the earth and as cold as ice for heaven. End quote. My dear people, what are we panting after? As we reminded a few weeks back, as we looked at the church of Ephesus, such a good church, doctrinally sound church. This is a kind of church that, looking on face value, you'd want to belong to. But the Lord had a problem with the church. They left their first love. And can I suggest, the zeal for the Lord had disappeared, had gone, because it said they'd become lukewarm. Jesus then commands the last church in that list of seven, the church at Laodicea in Revelation 3.19, which is a church that made Christ sick, by the way. It made him sick because it was, it was, it was spiritually lukewarm. He says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Maybe suffer this word of exhortation this morning as I bore it heavy on my own soul this last week myself. And be rebuked if necessary. And let us be repentant so that we might pray for the grace to understand the need to be zealous for God according to the word of truth that he's given us. Our last point here is a heart of belief in Christ brings righteousness. We see this in verse 4. You know, the age-old question that Job asked still rings out in people's minds in some form or another. How can a man be right before God? You see, there is a general quest, whether people admit it or not, there is a general quest for righteousness. Uh, some people might seek it in an acceptable morality or some people might seek it and believe they're getting there by being as good as the next man or better than the next man. Whatever. It's a general quest by people. Or as was the case for the Jews in Paul's day, in their God-given religion, which they they had made into something that was completely external, and, and they'd made it into something that glorified their own abilities to earn righteousness. That's what they'd done with the truth. And... Um, and it is so disturbing because as we read in verse 8 in this chapter, the very truth, the pure truth of God, the gospel of God was so near them. Okay? It was so near them. But they distorted the truth so much that they could not see what God's truth pointed to. They could not see what the law of God was all about. As we were thinking this morning that Christ came to, to deliver us from the curse of the law. They could not see that. They could not see what it unveiled, the truth of God, what it unveiled so that they might be saved. They failed in their willful ignorance of the truth to see Jesus Christ, their appointed Saviour. They failed in that. They failed in their willful ignorance and arrogance to believe in the gospel of God for salvation. They failed again. My dear people, every single one of us has the truth of gospel near us, far near, more near, they want the Jews did in Paul's day. And be reminded, those who have been given much, much will be required of them, right? 
Jesus reminds us of that. In other words, the more truth we know, the more truth we learn, we will be held accountable by God for what we do with that truth. We have been given so much truth. Let us not be willing ignorers of God's truth. But let us believe in Jesus Christ and be zealous for Him. Because ignoring God's truth that He's revealed in His, in His Word or putting your head in the sand, so to speak, is rejecting Him. That's what it's doing. So may we be zealous for God's truth. May we be people who are, who are marked as those who are zealous. May, may be even from this occasion, this church, the Spirit of God would energize this church, us as individuals and as a group, to be those people are known who are zealous for the truth of God. And it's not only seen in our doctrinal statements, but it's seen in our lives, in our practices, in our workplaces, in our homes, amongst our friends. You never know. The Lord may use us to turn the world upside down. He did it once before, right? I believe He can do it for us. Why not? Same God. May we be zealous for God's truth and may our faith in the Lord increase so that we might boil hot for God wherever we are. Praise God for His word and thank you for your kind attention. Thank you, Pete.